Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Lily Gorin, and today I'm speaking with Thomas Mulligan, author of Justice and the Meritocratic State, recently published by Rutledge Press. Mulligan takes on the question of distributive justice from ancient Western and Eastern conceptions of distributive justice to much more contemporary philosophical debates about how to think about the concept of justice. Mulligan is positioning his theory of the meritocratic justice within these multiple perspectives and understandings of justice, but I will certainly let him explain much more of this as we discuss his book, Justice and the Meritocratic State. But first, I would like to ask Thomas Mulligan to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hi, Lily. Well, uh, sure. First, thanks for having me on. And uh, well, I came to the project, I think the motivation really deep down is trying to come up with a new idea about justice that can motivate uh, real political and public policy change. I mean, we're at an inflection point, I think, here in the United States uh, when it comes to really fundamental issues of economic justice, uh, the distribution of wealth, the distribution uh, of income gender and racial discrimination and bias. Um, And of course, we have this extraordinary partisanship that has um, ripped apart, I think, national comedy, in many cases, friendships and family. Uh, And I don't think the extant theories of justice in the philosophical debate, namely egalitarianism, uh, as best advanced by John Rawls in his book, A Theory of Justice, or libertarianism, as best advanced by Robert Nozick in his book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, uh, are going to be able to break through this awful political morass that we find ourselves in. Um, I I came to academia relatively later in life. I was a military officer for a while. I was in the Central Intelligence Agency for six years. And uh, one of the things I took out of these experiences was that there really is a lot that unites us deep down. I mean, especially in the military, you work with all types of people from all different backgrounds, uh, races, genders, uh, now sexual identities, um, socioeconomic statuses, political beliefs. Uh, But you work in a productive, fair and respectful way because you agree about the importance of the mission and you share some, some fundamental values. And I thought, and I continue to think that that exists for society at large, and it exists indeed for human beings. And so uh, the book is really designed to examine the intuitions that unite us about justice, about the concept of justice, the sort of state we want to live in, and show that these intuitions lead to a coherent philosophical theory of economic justice, uh, which is, in my view, better than competitors on either the left, the egalitarian class of theories, or competitors on the right, the libertarian class of theories. Great. And and that's one of, I mean, and you did a fantastic job of just laying out some of the competing theories. Um, but I would love for you to explain, you know, the, the concept that you're sort of positioning the book around, which is this concept of um, meritocracy. Um, and what does that mean to some degree broadly, but also what does it mean in terms of your theory of justice? 
Yes. So uh, one of the things that I hope will be useful about the book is that it gives some meat to this idea of meritocracy. We, When I started thinking about this project, I tried to say, all right, well, who's written up a theory of meritocracy in the past? So we, I know basically where to start. No one has really written up a theory of meritocracy. We don't have a fully developed meritocratic theory of justice. And so I hope the book now provides that. Uh, yet at the same time, the word meritocracy and sort of the rough ideal permeates everything. It permeates how private entities think about hiring. It permeates American culture. And so the book, whether or not the argument is found compelling by people, I hope one thing that will be valuable is that it gives some meat, some structure to the idea of meritocracy. Uh, and so a meritocracy is a society characterized by two features. Uh, one, it is a society in which there is equal opportunity for all citizens. So people's prospects are not shaped by, for example, the wealth of the family they were born into, um, fortunate social circumstances, uh, race, gender, uh, factors irrelevant from the point of view of merit, a really robust equal opportunity of the sort that I think even John Rawls would not endorse. I endorse more robust equal opportunity than he. Uh, so that's the first principle is an equal opportunity principle. And the second principle is a distributive principle, distributing social goods, uh, things like jobs and income on the basis of merit, um, not on the basis of free contract, the way the libertarian would desire, uh, but also not on the basis of consequentialist considerations. One thing I talk about in the book is how certainly conceptually and often in the real world, hiring a less qualified applicant on the basis of race or gender, say, may lead to a better world. It may lead to a more prosperous world. It might lead to a happier world, but I still think it's unjust. I think the most meritorious applicant deserves the job uh, and so that's the distributive rule that ought to be followed. And I should mention that uh, when we talk about the philosophical theory, this is a dessert-based theory of justice. So it's, an, it's a, a theory based on the idea that there should be a match between what people put into a, an enterprise, an economy, uh, a firm, and what they get out of it. It's not a theory founded on the ideal of liberty as libertarian theories uh, are, nor is it a theory founded on the ideal of equality, which egalitarian theories are. It's founded on the idea that people deserve certain things by virtue of their character and their contributions, and our economy ought to respond to those deserts. Yeah, and one of the questions I had for you was you use this term dessert, which as I sort of was thinking about it is neither a confection that one consumes at the end of a meal, nor is it an arid expanse of land with a lot of sand. Um, and so can you provide listeners with an understanding of this term, particularly in the context of your theory? You've explained it a little bit, but I'd really like a little bit more because you do talk about you know, sort of how the individual gets a job based on dessert. Um, and, and, you know, we're going to eliminate all problems associated with, say, perhaps structural racism or gender inequality. Yes. So uh, the concept of dessert, of course, dessert has a lot of cognates. People deserve, uh, she deserves. Uh, the, we talk about the deserving poor or the undeserving poor. The fundamental idea of dessert is that there is a connection between 
the benefits a person receives or a mode of treatment uh, that a person gets and facts about the character or the contributions of that person. So maybe I can illustrate it with a couple examples. Uh, if we imagine uh, a company hires a new executive, writes a contract with the executive to manage his firm for the next year, they, the directors and the executive freely sign the contract, and then the executive does an awful job. He uh, mismanages the firm, he becomes a drunkard, he harasses female employees, uh, and then he gets he's paid $100 million or whatever his contract says, but he fulfills the terms of the contract. Um, we would say he's entitled maybe as a legal matter to that $100 million, but we wouldn't say he deserves the $100 million because he doesn't have the character or he didn't make the economic contribution, the contribution to his firm that would make him deserving. So dessert is really about uh, matching up a person's character with treatment. Uh, and it's also a post-institutional notion. So you can't tell what people deserve or do not deserve by virtue of what rules exist or what the laws are. Rather, the desertist like me thinks that rules or law ought to be written to reflect what people deserve. Um, does that help at all? Yes, but I do. I am curious about how we achieve this post-institutional structure. Yes. <laughs> well, it's, it's not about uh, achieving a post-institutional structure. It's about ensuring that the institutional structure aligns with the demands of dessert. So, I mean, another theorist, a utilitarian theorist would say, we need to set up our institutions so that our country is made as happy as possible. We want to maximize the general welfare. Uh, so there's the moral ideal, uh, a just society is a maximally happy one. And then we create our institutions, our tax and transfer institutions, our laws about hiring uh, in order to best track the ideal. Now, of course, in the reality, it can be very hard to know exactly what our regulations, what our institutions, what our laws ought to be. But if you're attracted to the utilitarian view, if you think it's correct, that's secondary. So first we say we're going to maximize the general welfare, then we create our institutions in its image. Similarly, if you're a, a Nozickian libertarian, you say we want to protect people's ability to interact freely. And so then we arrange our institutions accordingly, mainly by having very low uh, government interference into private affairs. On the account that I advance, we want people to get their just desserts. And so then we arrange public policy. And I do at the end of the book talk over a couple chapters about what I think the public policy ramifications of a dessert-based society are. Okay. And I do want you to explain that in a moment. Um, but I did want to ask you sort of more preliminary, preliminarily, because um, you discuss the political, theoretical and economic frameworks that provide provide the foundation for your analysis of this concept of sort of dessert justice. Um, and can you elaborate on these foundational aspects of your analysis um, and the theory? Sure. So it is a work of analytic philosophy um, in the vein of, well, certainly Rawls and Nozick and the, the sort of philosophy that's done at the major university departments uh, in the United States uh, and on the continent to a large degree as well. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's very mainstream in that respect. There are critics of this way of thinking about justice, postmodernists uh, on the left, Straussians on the right. Um, who either, 
and respectively deny the possibility of objective truth or think that what we really ought to be doing is searching for so-called esoteric truths in the great works of philosophy. I don't address these notions. I think they're just wrong. I think in, in many ways they're risable. Uh, and so it's simply an assumption of this work that there is such a thing as an objective truth and we should take the evidence as it is, uh, understand its limitations and do the best we can to make moral judgments using it. Uh, but secondarily, I do subscribe to the neoclassical approach to economics, which is, again, the mainstream uh, economic view. I talk a lot about economics and economic modeling in this book. One of the things I really think is important is that we advance an efficient uh, theory of distributive justice. And so I talk over three sections about the efficiency benefits of meritocracy. Um, and while this is mainstream, I should say there are Marxists on the left and Austrian economists on the right who would disagree uh, about the correctness of neoclassical theory. I think those are perfectly respectable points of view to have. Uh, I just don't agree with them. Uh, and most people who work on these issues don't. So there's not a big loss of generality in being an analytic thinker who uses neoclassical models. But I did want to at least devote some attention right up front to the general frameworks within which I'm working. Yeah. And I thought that was, it was really, you know, sort of clearly laid out. Your book is actually quite clear to a reader and, and I recommend it in, in that regard. It's very nicely written and, and, you know, sort of, um, you, you don't sort of mess around with a lot of jargon. Um, but I, I did want to ask you to talk a little bit more broadly about how you're positioning this concept of, meritocratic um, justice within the sort of, you know, you sort of use the the sort of framing of Nozick and Rawls. And, and they are, you know, they are big philosophers of the 20th century. And, and they're, as you know, throughout your book, you're sort of pushing against their concepts. So can you tell the, the audience a little bit about how Nozick and Rawls both frame your analysis and to some degree what you're deciding, what you're calling the third way, the positioning of your theory? Yes. Um, so maybe the way to talk about it is to mention a little bit about the empirical research on justice. So I devote a whole chapter of the book, a fairly lengthy chapter, to surveying. It's not new research, just surveying what we know about how people think about justice. People across lines of gender, race, political ideology, and culture. Uh, and one of the striking things is how much agreement there is across these demographic lines that you might think would make a difference in our theorizing about justice. Uh, and I point out two things. One, this consensus points towards a meritocratic framework for a society of the sort that, that I try to advance in the book. But two, it really demonstrates that popular opinion, uh, including educated opinion, doesn't just think that Rawls and Nozick, egalitarians and libertarians are wrong. Uh, it thinks they're badly wrong. So uh, James Konow, who's uh, probably the world's leading researcher on positive justice, uh, has a nice quote, something like, um, uh, our empirical research suggests almost zero support for egalitarianism, understood as equality of outcomes or uh, Rawlsian, the Rawlsian difference principle, which is Rawls's uh, egalitarian uh, distributive principle. Uh, and in fact, uh, for people who are familiar with the Rawlsian original position, 
uh, if you put people in the original position, so if you uh, keep from them facts about their race and gender, uh, things that could cause them to, to bias their selection of a just principle, and ask them to choose uh, the sort of distributive scheme they want to live under, they don't choose Rawls's difference principle. In fact, it's the least popular of the principles that are tested. Uh, and so philosophers either, I think, are unaware of this research or very dubious, I think more frequently very dubious, that this research matters. The actual facts about how people think about justice matter. But I argue that that's wrong. The stuff really does matter. And I think, uh, I won't get into it here, but I think in political philosophy, there's this new trend towards non-ideal theorizing. So I think there's more interest in examining the empirical evidence. Uh, but also similarly, the libertarian view that all we want are, are free contracts between people to be respected, minimal redistribution, minimal public support, uh, education to be handled in a purely private capacity, no redistribution from the rich to the poor, that isn't supported either. And it's not supported even among those who would benefit from that minimalist state that many libertarians endorse. Um, Instead, people really want to live in a society in which they're going to have equal opportunity and their prospects will be determined by their merits. So just one example, uh, there's something called the dictator game. This is where you get two experimental subjects in a room. You hand one of them an envelope of money and uh, you say, if you want, you can give some of the money to the other person. If you don't want to, you don't have to. And that's it. That's the whole experiment. And so the dictator game originally was interesting because people who get the envelope tend to give some money away. And if you're a ruthlessly, um, maybe libertarian is not fair, but if you ruthlessly subscribe to the idea that people are just single-minded self-interest seekers, that's at odds with, with that. People tend to give away about, I think, about a third of the money, keep two-thirds of the money for themselves. All right, so that's interesting. But there are variants on the dictator game in which the two people engage in some productive labor beforehand. So I think typically they uh, review documents, they do uh, proofreading, that sort of thing. And then the same thing happens. One person gets an envelope and says, the experimenter says, you can give some of it to the other person if you like. And what's really interesting is that people tend to give away more than they keep for themselves when the other person. Uh, made a greater contribution when the other person caught more typos, even though that player with the envelope could just keep it all herself and walk away. And in fact, uh, the modal offer, the most frequent offer, is giving away in direct proportion, exact proportion, to the contribution of the other player. And uh, that suggests that there is this deep desire to balance the good stuff we get out of a collective enterprise with our contributions to it. Um, in the book, I talk about the field of equity theory within social psychology in which you see this. Uh, if a person is underpaid, given her contributions, she's unhappy. But it turns out if she's overpaid, if she makes more money than she thinks she deserves, she's unhappy. People are happiest and most satisfied with their jobs when they earn precisely what they think they deserve. Uh, there's also research in neuroeconomics, which points to this, uh, this dessert-based principle of justice. We see it in um, the literature about child psychology, how children develop a sense of justice. Uh, in evolutionary history, there's um, a political scientist, Michael Bang-Peterson, who has done a lot of interesting research 
on why evolutionarily we developed this dessert-based sense of justice. And we even see it in non-human animals. So uh, I talk about this in chapter three. I find the empirical stuff just really interesting on its own, but I think the consensus is very robust uh, that there is a third way to think about justice and it's the dessert-based way. And and you also note that that it has not been given a lot of attention. I mean, you, you're talking about in your book places where people have done experiments on it, but in your in your sort of review of a lot of philosophy over you know millennia, um, that it it sort of you know popped up in Aristotle, and then nobody paid all that much attention to it. Yes. So there are some philosophers, some contemporary philosophers have admitted dessert um, into their theories of justice as one of plural principles of justice, one of many. So uh, David Miller is a prominent example, Walzer, Schmitz. So it hasn't been completely ignored, although the consensus more or less is that it's the notion is bunk. Most people have thought since Rawls, dessert just shouldn't be paid attention to. Um, but I, uh, as far as a monistic theory of justice, that is a theory of justice that says justice is dessert and nothing more, um, I've tried to do my best to to make that case in this book. Yeah, and I think that you know you you survey both you know e- as you note Eastern thinking and Western thinking, and you you explain that the the Chinese had actually adopted this in many ways. Yes, so this is. Um, it's been a prominent meritocracy has been a prominent element of uh, Chinese culture for millennia since Confucius, at least. Uh, now they give uh, the the ancient Chinese give a slightly different justification. So they justify meritocracy, and they were most concerned with political meritocracy: who's going to manage the Chinese government um, on consequentialist grounds. Uh, we want to have a meritocracy. We want to judge people on their merits because that leads to the best outcomes. Uh, which I think is a very good argument, uh, and I think it's an insight that was important and continues to be important, but it's not the way I justify meritocracy, the way I justify giving the most meritorious applicant a job. When we're talking about dessert-based theories of justice, a person deserves a job on the basis of his merit, and that's just it. That's a rule. It's a deontological theory. Uh, when you give the job to the most qualified applicant, you do your moral duty and you don't worry about the consequences. It just happens to be a great side effect of this meritocratic approach to justice that we create an efficient economy, that, that we have all these excellent consequences. And for me, that's uh, what I call a meta-theoretical reason to think that meritocracy is correct. It would be very odd if our theory of justice impoverished our society. Um, And when you think about, for example, Nozick's theory, a a night watchman state where there's no transfers of wealth, uh, minimal public goods, the government existing only to uh, prevent fraud and violence between citizens, it's very unclear the sort of state that would lead to and whether it would be, um, I mean, it could very well be some sort of Mad Max type dystopian uh, wasteland. And it seems odd to me to say, well, even if it turns out that it leads to Mad Max-type dystopian wasteland, we're going to endorse the theory if it appeals to us on purely theoretical grounds. So if it's good in the abstract, uh, we don't care about what the consequence is. Meta-theoretically, that seems odd. It seems to me if a theory suggests a very attractive and plausible society to live in, uh, far more plausible than the one I just described, (laughs) 
that's a meta-theoretical reason to believe that the theory is correct. So um, just to make it clear, meritocracy is a dessert-based theory. It's deontological. You give people what they deserve because there's a moral duty to do that. And it just happens to be the case that it leads to a, a very nice society that comports with our intuitions about how society should be. And and that's one of the I think arguments that you do make in the in the book that um, the a number of the other theories of of justice are actually ones that seem very difficult to to some degree live with, um, and that your theory that that you know sort of is making more sense as one that we can live with because it seems to work right in our conception of what justice is. Is that correct? Yes, I think so. That's at least the the case I try to make in the book. And and so in that in that regard, one of the points that you make that you've articulated and also that you write about in the book is that um, an individual's character is a component of their dessert. Is that correct? Yes. How and and in which way are we going to judge that? Well, one of the the features of the concept of dessert is identifying the right dessert basis. So when if we talk about who deserves the gold medal in a foot race, um, of course, you could say all sorts of things. You could say like, well, the richest runner deserves the gold. Or you could say the runner who has the whitest skin deserves the gold. You could say anything you want. But those dessert claims seem crazy. Um, who deserves the right? Who deserves the gold medal? It's the fastest runner. If the the one who ran fastest deserves the gold, and in each context, the dessert basis changes. So, if you're talking about who deserves the tiara in a beauty contest, well, presumably the most beautiful applicant deserves the tiara. And just to go back to this idea of dessert versus entitlement. Um, for the desertist, even if the rules of the beauty contest are written such that uh, the whiter applicants uh, get extra consideration, so um, the rules say if you're whiter, we're going to give you some extra consideration, you're going to be more likely to win. Even if someone, we still think that the most beautiful applicant, excuse me, the most beautiful contestant deserves that tiara. Uh, it's independent of the rules of the, the the enterprise, the rules of the beauty contest. Uh, and in this case, the rules are badly written. Why? Because in this context, beauty pageants, uh, beauty is what matters. That's the right dessert basis. And so the most beautiful contestant deserves that tiara, regardless of, of race, regardless of what the rules say. And so in the book, what are the contexts I'm interested in? Well, I'm interested in jobs, distribution of jobs, how should you hire people? And I'm interested in income, the distribution of income, how much should people be paid? Uh, and these more or less exhaust the uh, major considerations within the distributive justice debate. Uh, wealth being just an accrual of income, um, and we can talk about the distribution of wealth later, maybe a little if you're interested, but uh, on my account, who deserves jobs? Well, it's people who have uh, who are the most meritorious. So uh, individuals' merits matter. And of course, then we have to talk about, well, who is the most meritorious? How do you uh, determine that? And when it comes to the distribution of income, I think that people who contribute more to the economy deserve more. So people's incomes ought to be proportional to their economic contributions. These seem to be the right dessert bases. And if you take dessert seriously as the guiding principle of justice, 
this seems to be what you ought to look to when determining how people ought to be treated in these contexts. And and so in that, I'm, I'm curious about this. Um, I've been spending a bit of time learning about the prosperity gospel, which, you know, sort of fits in this a little bit um, that, you know, God has shined upon you and therefore you've made a lot of money. Um, and those who um, haven't made a lot of money, God hasn't shined upon them. Um, and so how, how do these kinds of concepts, which are very much at this point quite embedded in American society. Um, how do we work with regard to those concepts? Well, uh, one thing I talk about in the book extensively is how a view like that is not true in the United States. So there is an extraordinary disconnect between people's economic contributions and their economic rewards. Uh, much American income and American wealth is determined by virtue of family circumstances. You're born rich, you're going to stay rich regardless of your merits. You're born poor, you're going to stay poor. Uh, and moreover, there's plenty of evidence, which I survey in the book, that uh, top incomes in the United States, so these would be in incomes, uh, multiple multi-million dollar incomes, which accrue to corporate executives mainly, but also athletes uh, and other celebrities, are what we call economic rents, so payments which don't reflect uh, an underlying contribution, but rather are gained through some form of market failure, uh, market power on the part of the person who extracts the rent, um, nepotism, very frequently nepotism is um, a major driver of inequality in our society, uh, and poor proxies for merit. So something that really worries me uh, is our tendency to judge people not on the basis of their own merits, but on the basis, say, of the college that they went to, uh, the people they associated with. You need proxies for merit. There's no question about it. But we often rely on very poor proxies. Uh, this leads to suboptimal outcomes, and it also leads to injustice because we don't assess people on the basis of their own merits, but on the basis of features of classes to which they belong. These could be uh, the college they went to, it could be their race, it could be their gender. And I think uh, this is very awful. It's really at the heart of desert to judge a person on the basis of his character alone to the maximum extent possible. And how do we work around these, these you know, as you note, these sort of inappropriate or, or unjust evaluative structures that have been here as long as white Europeans have turned up in North America? Well, uh, I think two things. So first, as I mentioned, the theory really calls for robust equal opportunity. So uh, people have to, I mean, the, the classic example of equal opportunity that's been given, I think it was first given by LBJ, uh, is that of a race. Um, we normally say that, that the guy who crosses the finish line first deserves the medal. Well, what if you learn that all the other runners were hobbled before the starting gun goes off? Then that guy may might be entitled to the medal under the rules, but his moral claim on the medal, his claim to deserve the medal, seems undermined. Uh, so I don't think you can have a dessert-based distributive system. I don't think we can live in a meritocracy, have a society where people get what they deserve, unless we have really robust equal opportunity. Uh, and so what does this mean? Uh, this means that children born into disadvantage are compensated uh, by the government uh, through a variety of means, 
most likely robust public education, so that they're brought to that same starting line. Uh, so that children who happen to be born into wealth don't benefit from um, enrichment programs, elite schooling, uh, or any, it's not that they, we don't want them to benefit from it. We don't want people to be disadvantaged relative to them. So to the extent to which people uh, have access to these uh, special goods by virtue of their family's wealth, their family history, the many ways in which the past shapes the, the future and the present, uh, the government can step in and provide this level playing field. And uh, LBJ was quite aware that that metaphor was related to the equal opportunity uh, equal opportunity notion of public policy. But I think we've very much lost that um, over the past 40 years or so. Rather than trying to level the playing field, our public policy has been more focused, and certainly our political rhetoric has been more focused on equalizing outcomes. And I think this is very dangerous, not just, I think it's dangerous for a lot of reasons, one of which is people find it pre-theoretically false. We believe in equal opportunity. We don't believe in equal outcomes. Two, I think it's led to our partisan divide to some extent. And three, I think it's really stunted the ability of us to advance what I would view as progressive center-left policies um, like public education. Um, because there has been such a, uh, the policies which are being advanced and the rhetoric that's being used, especially I think the rhetoric of diversity uh, and the rhetoric of giving people extra advantage on the basis of race and gender, rather than bringing everyone to the same starting line, uh, is found so unattractive to so many people that we have given up on the ideal that we have to have really robust investment in public education, really robust support to children born into poverty and other forms uh, of disadvantage, and we have a less just state as a result. So, I mean, you're you're making a case, and this is what you do towards the end of the book with regard to the kinds of policies that we would have to, we as a country would have to adopt um, in order to reach the achievement of a meritocratic state. Um, and it has to, and those policies ultimately are about, as you know, sort of bringing those who are disadvantaged to the starting line, um, as opposed to giving them something at the end of the race. Um, and, and so the, the difficulty though, I think, I don't know, but the difficulty with, with all of this is that you have things like structural racism, right? Um, and bringing, bringing those who are disadvantaged by race in particular to the starting line, um, beyond education, where do these kind of meritocratic policies ultimately bring us? Well, I think more important than anything else, there has to be a cultural respect for judging people on the basis of their merit. Uh, so, I mean, my view of unequal outcomes between, say, the races is that it really is based on these extraordinary inequalities of wealth, especially, that have been passed from generation to generation. I mean, I should say this is not by any means a reactionary point of view. I think Marx would very much have have agreed that this is what's going wrong, that we have uh, these huge inequalities of wealth that um, don't reflect, say, economic contribution, and that this explains things. So just for example, the average black child is raised into a, fa into a family that has one-tenth the wealth of the average white child. And of course, oh, in, apart from all other potential problems regarding 
say, the stability of the family, this is going to have an enormous impact on that child's human capital development, ability to participate in the workforce, that is going to lead to very different economic outcomes. And so I would seek to eliminate uh, that disparity. I would seek to equalize the prospects uh, of the white child and the black child. And there's a very good, uh, interesting literature on how to make this notion of equal opportunity precise, which is due to John Romer. Uh, And so I do talk about the ways in which this sort of hand-wavy notion of equal opportunity can be made robust. And so if uh, listeners are interested in that. John Romer has has a number of uh, very good books on that. Uh, so there's that element, but I do also think we need a greater cultural focus on merit. So much of our political and our cultural discussion uh, focuses on extolling the virtues of these classes to which we may belong. Um, and not to really treating individuals with respect and dignity the way a deontologist would would like. I mean, talk about race and gender is ubiquitous. It's been ubiquitous for decades, uh, even though the left has really failed to improve the material condition of the lower and middle classes. But it's based its rhetoric on uh, these features of individuals rather than the individuals themselves, rather than equal opportunity, uh, in a way that people even on the left find objectionable. I mean, that's what the empirical research suggests. Uh, And so I think this focus by the left is a big tactical mistake. I think it has uh, had the effect of stifling uh, and preventing leftist public policies that otherwise would have been implemented uh, were the equal opportunity notion appealed to. And maybe I'll just give one more example. I mean, now, of course, there's a lot of discussion about um, transgender rights and uh, how transgender citizens should be treated. 90% of the debate, 95%, 96%, revolves around whether metaphysical issues, whether this transgender person really is a woman, uh, what set of necessary and sufficient conditions have to be met such that she qualifies as a woman and thereby is treated equally as we believe all women should be. Um, But I think these metaphysical issues are intractable, and I don't think they're that useful. So another argument that could be given, and another argument that I do give, is that, look, we ought to treat people on the basis of their merit. And when someone applies for a job, making widgets, and is transgender, uh, that gender identity is irrelevant. It has nothing to do with merit. Uh, It has nothing to do with that person's ability to make widgets, and so it must be ignored. It's categorically unjust to discriminate on the basis of transgender status, gender identity. Um, And why? Well, because if we do discriminate on that grounds, we deviate from purely merit-based hiring. Uh, And so that, I think, is a much more fruitful way to discuss these issues because it avoids what I think are really impossible and uninteresting questions about the metaphysics of gender. And it is more appealing. So if you have um, uh, someone of a conservative sensibility who was raised into a religious household, uh, comes from a conservative point of view, uh, and then you say, look, um, at the moment that Caitlyn Jenner declared herself to be female, she was female metaphysically. Well, you know, you could see that someone would find that dubious. 
um, someone might not agree. And then you start trying to argue for we need to give benefits to Caitlyn Jenner uh, because now she's a woman, a woman and women deserve benefits. You don't get anywhere because they reject the really fundamental notion that you're getting to. But rather, if you go to that person, you say, look, um, Caitlyn Jenner is different from you, but she's the most qualified applicant for this job. Uh, and we have a duty to treat people on the basis of, of their merits. And when a person makes herself meritorious, when a person can do the job on the basis of her ability and her effort and her preparation, uh, when she's comported herself in a responsible way, she should not be denied the thing for which she is best suited. I think that has much more rhetorical force. And I think we'd have a, uh, a more just society if we focused our rhetoric in that way. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think that your argument about a sort of starting the race at the same level, and again, you, you know, you tag it to Lyndon Johnson, you can also tag it a bit to Abraham Lincoln, um, that it's, in, it's, you know, sort of inherent in our birthright, right? As Americans, this is what you also note about the American dream. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about how to move into this direction of the American dream um, concept and and how the meritocratic sort of policies will in fact get us closer to that ideal. Yes. So I think the two parts of the theory, the equal opportunity part and the judgment based on merit part, have to walk together in tandem. So we need to appeal to conservatives and say, we are going to take some of your money and we're going to redistribute it uh, because you had advantages uh, that others did not. And they, if we make that argument, I think people will be amenable to it, but they then have to think, they have to be confident that we are at the same time working towards a society in which people are judged on their merits. Very much people uh, are worried about having their hard-earned incomes, having the things that they've worked for taken away uh, and given to layabouts, given to people who don't deserve it. Um, and on the left, I think we have to um, make the case that it is unjust uh, when we discriminate on the basis of merit, but at the same time say we understand that there are differences in merit by virtue of past circumstances. And so as we enforce the merit-based uh, distributive part of the theory, we are also making real strides towards equalizing opportunity. So I don't think the two can be separated. They have to both be promoted hand in hand. Um, and I think the best way to do that, as I mentioned a little before, is we really need to have a cultural focus on merit. We really need to endorse this notion of the American dream um, as a society and redouble our efforts to make the dream a reality. Uh, I mean, I do talk a bit about some possible policies. Robust education is certainly one of them. I'm amenable to some forms of affirmative action which might neutralize anti-meritocratic bias. So for example, if it's the case that uh, there exists implicit bias against women in some context, we might be able to give affirmative action to women uh, in a way that doesn't violate meritocratic standards because our just naive selection, which incorporates the bias, doesn't pick out the most meritorious applicant. Uh, but I am opposed to forms of affirmative action uh, that do give advantage to people 
uh, on the basis of features like race and gender. Um, and so, I mean, I would go back, for example, to Martin Luther King Jr.'s notion of having his children judged on the basis of the content of their character and not the color of their skin. That's a meritocratic call. That's a call for people to be judged purely on the basis of their merit. It's not a call for diversity. It's not a call for equal representation where with any, within any given job, let's say, there has to be the same proportion of men to women, whites to blacks, demographic feature X to demographic feature Y as exists in the general population. Uh, it's a meritocratic call. And um, I mean, I should note that even though people often sort of lump these together, they're completely incompatible. So you can't have a society without discrimination and a society in which you promote diversity or you promote equal representation. The two principles are not compatible. Um, and I argue that the anti-discrimination principle, no one is ever judged, given advantage or disadvantaged on the basis of race or gender, is the correct one. And 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 again, this is, you know, this is an ideal that would, in fact, allow the blossoming of the American dream. Um, and and I and I think it's it it is very much a, an extremely attractive ideal. Um, and and so, how do we ultimately move? beyond racial and gender biases? Well, in addition to the, the cultural aspects I've mentioned, um, if we have more um, stringent rules about hiring, so for example, uh, private firms can now discriminate on the basis of, of family connections, social connections, can use nepotism and cronyism um, legally, that uh, is bad, that's anti-meritocratic, that should be prescribed. Um, Small firms can discriminate on the basis of race and gender. Well, that's irrelevant from the point of view of merit. I mean, I would prevent discrimination on the basis of appearance. Why? Well, appearance is irrelevant uh, to merit in virtually all contexts. But we know uh, there's a whole economics literature on the so-called beauty premium. Two people of equal ability, the pretty person gets paid more, the unattractive person gets paid less. Uh, that's unjust. We don't have any public outcry about it, but I think there should be a public outcry about it in just the same way that there's public outcry about uh, giving a man and a woman of equal productivity, the woman being paid less. I think both cases are wrong. And I think these sort of intuitive senses we have about unjust discrimination, uh, we should just generalize them. We know it's unjust when you discriminate against a best qualified applicant on the basis of race. It's unjust when you discriminate against the best qualified applicant on the basis of gender. Well, it's unjust when you discriminate against the best qualified applicant on any grounds, irrelevant from the point of view of merit. Um, and so I think those hiring rules would go some ways. Certainly, um, as I argue in, in the book on, um, on income, or excuse me, on the chapter on income distribution, high marginal, top marginal tax rates would help. Why? Because our highest income citizens are receiving big incomes that don't reflect an underlying contribution. They're just economic rents. And so we could tax those rents away, make a more just society. We can tax them away without reducing efficiency because they are economic rents. Um, the massive investment in public education and social support for the poor, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of billion of dollars uh, of investment in these programs, would go a long way towards uh, creating a more equal society. Now, I happen to think equality is of no fundamental importance, but this is the sort of society we'd be led to. Uh, and as I note in the book, by my lights, the Scandinavian states 
approximate the meritocratic ideal the best of all. And they are often held up as the exemplars of just states by people of a leftist bent. Um, I think the diagnosis of why they're just, the leftist diagnosis of why they're just, namely they're very equal, is wrong. But it just happens to turn out that if you live in a meritocratic state in which there's equal opportunity and income based on economic contribution, you get a pretty equal outcome because our merits are not so different. I mean, that's a point that's that was made by Adam Smith, and it's a point that's been reinforced by some recent empirical uh, literature, which I survey. Um, and so I would say if people are attracted to the ideal, and they're wondering about the public policies that are necessary to get there, uh, the Scandinavian states, um, Norway, uh, Sweden, give very good guidance. Of course, public policy is tough. It's always difficult to know exactly what we ought to do, what exactly should the tax rates be. Um, but these are really of a categorically these, this problem is really categorically different. It's a question about our epistemic limitations. It's not a question about uh, the justness of the ideal. Uh, nevertheless, I think those serve as good models, um, and I think they're the most meritocratic states that exist, and we should aspire to be like them. And they tend to rank as among the happier ones, too, as I understand it. They do, and for me, this is no surprise. <laughs> I mean, they... Uh, embody the ideals of how human beings want to live together, ideals that exist across demographic lines. And so naturally, people are going to be satisfied with the way they're living uh, in common with their peers. And so uh, this is, I mean, this is a substantial contribution to thinking about a concept of justice for the United States. Um, and, and I'm sure it didn't take you a short while to write this book um, or do the research on it, because it is, it is extremely well documented and sourced and cited. Um, so Tom, what are you working on now? Well, I'm, um, I've got a couple projects uh, in the hopper. So one paper I just wrapped up is on this notion of economic rents and uh, defending the idea that people have no claim of justice on the rents they may ex extract. So getting a little more into the economics um, of, ec of economic rent of this phenomenon and the extent to which it exists uh, in society. Uh, I'm working on um, a paper, I'm working on a couple formal papers about how people can make good decisions together. So uh, this is known as collective decision making. Uh, people share some desired outcome. You imagine maybe a group of doctors is trying to save a patient's life, but they disagree about how best to do that. They disagree about exactly what treatment they should use, what medicine they should prescribe, uh, and they're different. Some people are, some doctors are smarter than others. Some are more experienced. Some have access to different sorts of information. And so we want to know formally how to aggregate this individual judgment together uh, in an optimal way so that we maximize the probability uh, that the patient gets saved in this case. Um, and so that's what I'm doing now. Um, sounds great. If any of these become books, will you come back on the New Books Podcast? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I've had a great time. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your book, Thomas Mulligan, um, Justice and the Meritocratic State from Rutledge. Do you know if there's any discount that Rutledge is giving on this book? Well, uh, I think if people are interested, they should send me a note and I'll, I'll see what I can do. Okay, great. You heard that audience send Thomas a note and he will see what he can do. So thank you for joining me today. And um, I look forward to talking to you again. Okay. Thanks, Lily. Bye. Bye.